and thought about this a lot because we mentioned uh, a lot of people talk about this psalm and it's going to take us, I can see already from some things that do today, uh, it's going to take us a couple of times on this psalm. I, I recognize it's a very brief psalm and, and yet um, it. I, I think the taking of two times is not as much uh, maybe just going through what's in the text, but trying to look at some things that people have said about this text. And as one writer said who wrote on this book 25, 30 years ago, he said, look how extensive my bibliography is. And he says, he says I haven't even hardly touched the surface of all that's written on this psalm. Why is this psalm, why has it attracted such attention? Uh, we're going to read it. We're going to just give a little outline, incorporate a few things into the discussion of the psalm or from the psalm into this discussion about why it has attracted such interest and um, what some of the discussions are behind it. But Psalm 82 the New American Standard Bible. Every word of verse 1 is special. It's very important. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. So, Psalm 82. One kind of brief statement about it. Verse 1, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the wicked. So there is, in verse 1... A statement about God in verse 8 there is a call for God to arise and judge verse 8 arise O God judge the earth for it is you who possess the nations so you have a statement about God and then a statement to God Calling on God to arise, to judge. And often the word for arise that is used there in verse 8, it is used frequently in the Psalms, calling God to act, calling God to bring judgment on the wicked. We saw it used first that way as early as Psalm 3, verse 7 uh, and then Psalm 7, verse 6, and then I've got down a whole bunch of references. But 
So what you see there, a uh, call for God to arise and judge. But v- verses 2 through 7, verses 2 through 7 seem to be God as the speaker. So there is an introduction and a statement about him, then a statement to him, and then but in between he speaks. He speaks. And he asks how long? We have seen that question. The Psalms often ask to God when a person is under difficult circumstances and does not think he can bear that load infinitely. And he cries out to God, how long? But here God is asking that question. How long? How long will you judge unjustly? What is the problem addressed in these verses? What's the problem being addressed? Unjust judges. Unjust judges, yes. Unjust judges and unjust judgments. In verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In the Psalms, this word wicked, and some writers do a good job of tracing this word. Uh, One of the things said about the wicked is there is no fear of God before their eyes. In Psalm 36 verse 1. But, But that is the picture of the wicked. They are the ones who should find themselves judged, but they are the ones that are receiving favorable treatment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And he tells the judge, he uses four imperatives in verses 3 and 4, vindicate, do justice, rescue, and deliver. Four imperatives. Uh, vindicate, do justice. That word vindicate, by the way, in verse 3, that word vindicate is the same word translated judge in verse 1, in verse 2, and verse 8. So we could put it right there among them. It's translated differently. Because it has the idea of vindicating the weak and the fatherless. But four different imperatives vindicate what the rest of them now um, do justice. Do justice. And then rescue. Rescue and deliver. Deliver. Okay. And he gives also in the midst after these four four imperatives as what the judges are to do, then he gives different descriptions of those that they are to deliver or rescue. And he uses multiple terms. He talks about the weak and the fatherless. He talks about the afflicted and the destitute, the weak and the needy, and deliver. He doesn't give the object to uh, the, the object of deliverance there, but deliver out of the hand of the wicked. But different words for God doing good to them and different words for these who suffer. So the world is full of injustice and corruption. It wasn't a scene that was unique then. 
it is not a scene that is unique now. But, but the injustice was so severe and so great that it's said to be in verse 5, the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, I still feel that way about our world. And you probably do too. And I felt that way about our world 30 years ago. And if I'd been alive before that, I would have felt that way about it then. I think that is ever the situation of the earth that it seems like wickedness is rampant, the foundations of the world are shaken, and this psalm mentions that. Now, why has it attracted so much attention? Uh, well, in verse 1, I said every word is significant. And this is certainly no... Uh, every word's always significant in the Bible, but especially of this verse. God takes his stand in his own congregation. The first word of the verse, of 82.1, is God. And God is the Hebrew term Elohim. Now, Elohim is going to be the term that's used here, not the term Yahweh, which is the term which would be translated by Lord in all capital letters. But remember, Psalms 42 through 83 are Psalms that usually have the name Elohim there instead of Yahweh anyway. So that fits perfectly contextually. Usually in a Hebrew sentence, usually in an English sentence, which comes first? The subject or the verb? Subject. subject usually comes first. Subject. And sometimes I only learn things like that from comparing it with other languages. You take it for granted sometimes when you speak it all the time. But in Hebrew, usually the verb comes first. Usually the verb is first. Now, in this verse, in the Hebrew... God appears first. And so, if it appears before the verb, that would be what we would describe as emphatic. That there's a special emphasis on God. God takes His stand in His own congregation. Now, his own congregation. I'm reading the New American Standard 1995 version. Reading from the New American Standard 1995. Now, what do your other translations have for in his own congregation? has taken his place in the divine council. Okay. Has taken his place, but in the divine council. ESV. 
New King James has in the congregation of the mighty. In the congregation of the mighty. And that's the New King James. And the King James has something like that. If any of you have the King James or can look that up on your computer or tablet or phone, uh, King James is something like that there. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. Congregation of the mighty. So, so it has the same basic wording, King James and New King James. Okay. Anything else that's different from that? I'm forgetting what the NIV had. What is besides in the great assembly that is the uh, uh, New International Version. The New International Version. Yeah. In the great assembly. In the great assembly. In the great assembly. Right. Okay. In the great assembly. And I do apologize. I am having some problems hearing. <coughs> I got an appointment with an ear, nose, and throat person in July. <laughs> so they're right on this. <laughs> they were right on this. And um, if I don't if I if I don't make it till then maybe y'all could all chip in to put that on my tombstone <laughs> in July. So uh, but but now why do you see all this kind of difference and why is it a big deal? Why is it a big deal? Well, the, the Hebrew phrase um, has a word that could be translated congregation, as you all have seen. It could be translated assembly. Um, it could be translated, I guess, uh, council. Um, it could be translated with these terms. But um, the council is a council of apologize it is um, it is in the assembly of L which okay. I, I know that sometimes you won't recognize these letters but like I said this is Elohim this is a name for God that she's Used two times in verse one. L is sometimes a shortened form of Elohim. Um, now it can also look back in Psalm Psalm eighty. Psalm eighty. Psalm eighty, verse ten. The mountains were covered with its shadows and the cedars of God. <coughs> cedars of God. Do any of your translations have anything different than cedars of God, um, Vicki? The mighty cedars. The mighty cedars. With branches. Okay, yeah, yeah, the mighty cedars. Yes, yes, it does say with branches. Uh, but, but, but the key I was emphasizing, they, they are, that is the word L. And you see that L is sometimes taken as a noun, as a noun referring to God. It is taken as 
an adverb, no, excuse me, that'd be an adjective, referring to mighty. Mighty. I was getting confused because oftentimes adverbs in the L-Y, but adjective. And so you see why it's sometimes tra translated the congregation of the mighty or the great assembly. They are translating that as an adjective while both of these translations, whether it makes it a reference to God or whether it makes it a reference to the divine, they are translating as a noun. Now, again, uh, not, to, not to wear you out, but uh, the Lord, the Lord God is standing in his whole congregations and he judges, the New American Standard says, he judges in the midst of rulers. Rulers is the translation of the New American Standard. Now, what do the other translations have differently there? Yes, V has, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The midst of the gods is the key thing. Does that have a, a large, that is a, a small G? Small, small G. Okay, in the midst of the gods, the ESV has. That's also New King James. New King James is that. Okay. It is the same word, Elohim, used at first of the verse. So Elohim stands, takes his stand in the congregation of El. And he judges in the midst of the Elohim. So the question is, who are, who are the set, who composes the second Elohim here? Who is it? God rules in the midst of them, and who are they? That, that's a big question. Is this a reference? Is this acknowledging those gods the pagans viewed are real? Is that saying that? Is it a reference to angels and spirits and demons in that world? Is it a reference to human rulers? Is that who it is speaking of? Now, I, I want you tonight. I, 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 we're blessed to have over 20 people here. And if you have a question or I am not saying something clearly, please ask. I may not be able to explain it clearly after you ask. But I will do the best I can. I'll do the best I can. Now, even though um, we haven't gotten into everything yet, do you basically grasp where we are right now God takes his stand in his own congregation and judges in the midst of the rulers that we have in this verse three words used for God or three times God is referenced. Twice he's called Elohim and once he is called El. And it could be uh, that God takes his stand in the congregation of God and he rules in the midst of the gods. And whoever these gods are, these gods are rebuked for the wicked situation 
that the wicked are shown partiality and that the they need to vindicate the weak and fatherless. Okay? Everyone with us at this point. Not to be insulting, but just to ask everybody with us. Okay. And I want you to, to feel free afterwards, if you think there's a better logical order in which to present this, to let me know. Because if I have to say it again, um, is there anything up there do you need to take a picture of it real quick or are you saying get this off the board as quickly as you can? <laughs> okay. Okay. So who are those gods? This is what has engendered so much discussion on this psalm. Now, um, some of you said that you had studied a lot on this. Do, do you all have anything to add right now? Um, okay. Let's ask the question, who are the gods that God judges in their midst. Who are they? Who are they? Who are these gods of Psalm 82 1 that are addressed? Okay. One possibility is that this is talking about human rulers. Now, when you first see that, what is an immediate difficulty with that? Yeah, those usually aren't parties that go hand in hand, are they? Um, And but can can the term refer to human rulers ever? Well, look first in Exodus twenty-one, verse six. Exodus 21, verse 6. This is about a person who has been a slave for six years, and after his service for six years, he wants to continue to be a slave to his master. Now, this was done in a public ceremony. It was done in a public ceremony, perhaps to safeguard the slave and the master both. Does the slave really want to be a servant? Does he really want to be a slave of this man for life? I'll just start in verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, 
My wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the of the doorpost. And his master shall pierce him with an awl. And he shall serve him permanently. So there in Exodus 21, 6, the New American Standard says, you bring him before God. Now I know not all of your versions have those words. What do some of the other versions have? Judges. 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 And that's the New King James? Yes. Okay. Is that what the ESV has? Mm -hmm. To God. Okay. The ESV has God? Yes. Okay. Uh, what's the NIV have? Judges. Yeah. Judges. Okay. The footnote says to the judges who ruled in God's name. Okay. Okay. And, and, but the word is, in the Hebrew, you shall bring him to Elohim. Okay? But, but keep in mind Boyd's footnote that he said. Okay, look over at Exodus 22. Exodus 22. And this is a case of a man, he's charged with keeping something for a friend. And he's charged with keeping something for a friend, and it ends up missing. The first thing you do is you investigate the person who was charged to keep it. Um, and uh, verse 8, Exodus 22, 8, If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges, and he whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Now, um, what um, this has judges, Exodus 22, 8 and 9, in the New American Standard Bible. What do your other versions have? God in the ESV. God in the ESV. New King James has judges. New King James has judges. What's the NIV have? Judges. Judges. First of all, do you see an interesting alliance of translations <laughs> of this? That sometimes one's who translated this together may translate this differently. Um, and but what's interesting, the ones who can claim consistency here are all the versions except the New American Standard. Because it's the same word Elohim that's used back in Exodus 21, verse 6. It's the same word. The ESV is consistent because it translates it God both times. The New King James and NIV are consistent because they translate it judges both times. But the New American Standard translates it God once and judges a second time. Now, um, I, I don't remember if, if there's, there may be some more things in context 
that, that give some of that away. But it's the same word. And like Boyd said a moment ago, as a footnote, it's the judges in the place of God or, or something to that effect. Uh, and that is basically uh, the idea here. That's how it's translated in the New American Standard. But what you see is when they come before these human judges who are to judge based on what is right, what is godly, what God has shown them, that these human judges are spoken of as God. Now, I know some find difficulty with that, uh, who disagree that these could be human judges at all. But, but listen, there's a couple of scriptures to hang that on. And um, also look at Psalm 47, excuse me, Psalm 45, Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7. Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7, particularly Psalm 45 verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. At Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God. Now I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think all your translations have God here. Now, this is talking about Israel's king. Did Israel view their king as divine? Did they view their king as God? No. Did other nations? Sometimes. The Egyptians viewed their gods, their rulers, as gods. We know when we get to New Testament times that after Roman leaders died, they were pronounced gods. Often nations did view their leaders as gods. Israel didn't, but they still used the term Elohim in reference to him. Why? Because in his leadership, in his kingship, he is to uphold God's standard. In verse 7 of Psalm 45, he is to love righteousness and he is to hate iniquity. And as he upholds God's standards and God's methods of judging, as he upholds them, he is spoken of as God. Now, I will tell you something that is interesting. If the New Testament quotes this verse in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 and applies it to Jesus, and there God has the full force of God. But in the Old Testament, it's talking about a human ruler here first. And uh, so my point is in these passages that it is not beyond the realm of possibility that these kind of words could be addressed to the gods. And the responsibilities... The responsibilities of these rulers, the responsibilities of these rulers to do justice and righteousness is something that is often said of Israel's rulers. 
David is said to do justice in righteousness in 2 Samuel 8.15. Solomon is said to do justice and righteousness in 1 Kings 10.9. Josiah is said to do justice in righteousness in Jeremiah 22 verses 15 and 16. Rulers are called to do the same thing that these rulers are told to do in this particular passage. And often rulers in the Old Testament, and I have a multiple of passages for this, uh, the rulers who are condemned in the Bible are rulers who didn't do this very thing. So it could refer to human rulers and even though some like to discount that, oh, that's the traditional interpretation, there's something to back it up. Sometimes when people have believed something a long time, that doesn't mean just accept it because it's true, but maybe there's a good reason for it. You don't automatically dismiss it because people believed it a long time. Oh, that's traditional. You know, C.S. has talked about that is chronological snobbery. We think we're so enlightened, and, and, and so uh, and, and he says, oh, that's been, he, he uses example, he said, we like to think, oh, that's been disproved long ago, and he says, wait, by whom? Was disproved by whom? And how forceful was their arguments? What was their argument? He said, you ask those questions sometimes to people, and all of a sudden, there's silence. And um, so there's some good basis for that. That's not the only thought. Um, some think these references to Elohim are a reference to pagan gods or deities. Like we read in the Old Testament, Dagon and Baal and um, Marduk and gods like this, that these are the gods, these are the ones that are being addressed in this passage. That God stands in their midst and shows that He is, He rebukes them for the evil and injustice in the world. Now, I would put and understand any kind of summary of everything people have written on this is overly simplistic because there would be all kinds of different nuances under these different things. But there is a form of this I could understand and even sympathize with and that may have, may be true. And there's a form of this I really can't sympathize with. And I don't want to think it's true. I don't think it's true at all. Let's deal with the first one. Some take this as a polemic against these gods. That what in polemic, for example, 
In the days when brethren often debated, they would talk about the polemic platform. Polemic is an argument. It's a disagreement. It's a, it's an, it doesn't have to be a debate, but a debate is a good example of it. It is when you're trying to make point and counterpoint and you're answering someone else's argument and you're giving an argument in return. All of that would fit under the heading of polemics. And to say this is a polemic against these gods is to say, as some writers like Van Gimmeren in the uh, Expositor's Bible says, that all the attributes that the pagans attributed to their deities, the Bible attributes to God. For example, in their literature, they talk about they talk about their gods vindicating the weak, judging for the afflicted and the destitute, and rescuing the weak. They, they, they talk in their writings about their gods doing this. And that this is saying, no, no, it's not your God who does it. it it's our God who does it. And our God is rebuking your gods because they're not doing it. That it's really a way to show the superiority of Israel's gods. Um, and another writer says, by using imagery so similar to the residents of the land of Canaan and Israel, whether Yahweh as the sole... Okay, I, didn't, I picked that up too much in midstream. Okay. The Psalms of Yahweh's kingship of God's reign, reflect, often reflect, imagery that the ancient people used of Baal and how he became king. By using this imagery so, so familiar to the people of the land of Canaan, whether Yahweh, it, it views that Yahweh as the sole ruler of the world, and the ruler of nature. I don't know if I read that well again, but this is the point. It takes language that they would be familiar with. Their gods all come together in this council. And their gods make suggestions and decide things and carry out these decrees. It picks up all this kind of language and all this kind of imagery from the ancient Near East. And it says, okay... When these gods all come together and they meet, it's our God that's in control. It's our God that rebukes your God and sentences them to die because they haven't carried out justice and righteousness. Now, I don't know if that's the explanation for this passage. But I will say, I believe that kind of thing is done in other places in the Bible. For example, you remember in 1 Kings 18, Elijah says, or 1 Kings 17, he first says this, there's going to be no rain nor no dew till I say so. Okay. Why did he pick out that? Why did he say no dew, no rain? Well, the people were worshiping Baal. And Baal was believed to control the rain and the dew. 
And he says, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, thus says Israel's God, Baal, who you're serving, Ahab, and who your wife Jezebel is serving, Baal, the Lord is going to show, the Lord's going to take Baal on on his home turf and show that he's going to win. And he says, there's not going to be any dew, any rain, till I say so. For three and a half years, there's no dew, there's no rain. Now, can you imagine if God had one? No dew, no rain for three and a half years. And their temperatures are a lot hotter than ours. And it's just, it's amazing. They meet at Mount Carmel, remember, when they had a contest, which was a sacred site in Baal religion. He's taking on Baal on his own turf in the very thing that Baal is able to provide. And he says, whichever God answers by fire, he is God. Well, Baal, there's still inscriptions that we have found on caves today of Baal with a lightning bolt in his hand. Now, how did that fire come down from heaven? Well, I suppose it's something like lightning. If it's not lightning exactly, it's something like that. But he's, but, but you know, this is something that if Baal could do anything, this is what Baal could do. And his prophets cry out from morning till afternoon, and there's no answer, and there's no voice. But Elijah prays one simple prayer, and the Lord sends down fire that consumes the offering and all the water in the trench around the offering. In Psalm 29 talks about the Lord 18 times. It talks about the voice of the Lord seven times. The voice of the Lord in that context is thunder. The God of glory thunders. I think it's verse 3 that says. And what that is, is basically a polemic against Baal. What you attributed to your God, the Bible attributes to the God of heaven. So, I agree that this kind of thing is done in Scripture. And it may be done in Psalm 82. That's the view of this that I can accept. But there is a view of this that I do think is much more dangerous. And that I cannot countenance. Robert Alter teaches, he wrote much on the Old Testament, understanding poetry, understanding historical writings. He wrote some good things. He wrote some good things, but I don't know if he was a believer in any shape, form, or fashion. And he wrote some commentaries on the Psalms. He says this about Psalm 60, Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. Now let me read Psalm 82, 6 and 7 again. I said you are God, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Now listen to Alter's, Robert Alter, excuse me, 
I may have said Alden. Because there's another Robert Alden. Did I say that? Okay, I said it right, but Alter. There's a man named Robert Alden who who writes on the Psalms who wouldn't take this view. Uh, But Robert Alter said this. God confesses to have been taken in by the polytheistic illusion. He imagined that these sundry gods entrusted with the administration of justice on earth would prove and justify their divine status by doing their job properly. In any event, he was sadly disappointed. Think about that. God was taken in by a polytheistic illusion. How do you square that with, with anything? We've been in the, in the Old Testament. Yeah, I know, I know. But well, somebody's been taken in already. Yeah, you're right. That's a good. That's a good comment, Bob. Um, years ago, I think this dated to the time that. Uh, Mel Gibson's movie on Jesus was so big that one of the networks did a movie on Noah and the flood and um, a couple of night things. And some brethren I, I talked to, I remember, they were so irate because it had Noah and Lot all there together. And, uh, that's true. That was wrong. But this was what was really wrong. This was the bottom line problem. After God, after the, the flood has ended, and Noah is speaking with God, and God is communicating with him, God wonders aloud, if he made a mistake in judging the world. Yeah, you shouldn't confuse the times Noah lived and the times Lot lived. But I want to tell you, and I think this is what Mary's hitting at and mentioning the Ten Commandments, what they teach us about God and His nature, that's fundamental to who we are. It's fundamental. And fundamental to what we believe. Now, this is where I want to use this book, Vicki. Um, and this is a great commentary on Isaiah. This is volume two of John Oswald's commentary on Isaiah. And they are masterpieces. But what I'm saying, the reason I'm holding this up, just because this is a masterpiece doesn't mean that absolutely everything in this series is. Okay? And, and I, I'm reading the things they're writing on the Psalms in this same series. And sometimes they have really good comments. They're extremely brief because they kept it all in one book. They're extremely brief, but they're, sometimes they're pretty good. But this I found disturbing and dangerous in this series 
volume on the Psalms and on Psalm 82. Modern thinking holds to a monotheistic theology, meaning there's only one God and the gods of others simply do not exist. Ancient Israel did not have the same definition of monotheism. Indeed, for them, not only did other gods exist, but those gods were active in the world. Now, if that wasn't dangerous enough, when it gets to a section on application, this statement is made. In a diverse world, perhaps... This psalm should give us pause and invite us to think of monotheism differently. Others are not necessarily delusional in their belief in their gods, but are simply people from different places or different cultures. We should not assume that others are evil or suspect simply because a group of people have a different God. Later, we often think of judgment falling on those who do not believe. But judgment in this chapter falls on these gods just as it does on humans, not for what they believe, but for what they choose to do. Now, I ask you, is there anything we have got to believe now, I know if we had to agree on everything, there wouldn't even be a sustainable marriage in our world. But if we don't have to agree on anything, seriously? Hey, is that what they're. And if we're going to surrender our concept of God? No, there are things we have got to believe. And. and one of the things that I was disturbed about in some of my reading is, is some things that are written are scholarly, that are thoughtful, but are denying that Israel ever claimed to believe in one God. And now understand, all the verses that I'm about to give you, they've got some explanation for, but I don't think it's adequate Let's, let's look at passages and let's ask that question. The statement was made that in Israel, they didn't just believe in one God. Monotheism didn't mean the same thing as we think it means, belief in one God. Well, let's just try that. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. These passages are really important. Uh, so, Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. Deuteronomy 4, Verse 39, the Bible says to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God and there is none other besides Him. Deuteronomy 4, 30, 35. Deuteronomy 4, 39. Know therefore today and take it to heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on earth below. And there is no other. Deuteronomy 30, 32. In Deuteronomy 32, in verse 12, talking about Israel's history, 
the Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. It's Deuteronomy uh, 32 and verse 12 in verse 39. Verse 39. And now that I, I am He, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it's I who healed. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Okay? I put to death, I give life, I wound, I heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Now, the, new, the, the book of Isaiah, you see the same kind of emphasis in Isaiah. Particularly, chapters 40 through 48. Um, Isaiah 42, verse 8. Let's just start here. We could look at other passages. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to graven images. Isaiah 42. Also write down Isaiah 41, 21 through 24. Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 43, 11 through 13. Isaiah 43, verses 11 through 13. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He, and there is none, and, and there's none who can deliver out of my hands. I act, and who can reverse it? Um, I'm going to give you some other verses, but I really want to read 20 through 23. Okay? 20 through 23. Let's, I want to make sure I get these verses for you to look at on your own. That's the most important thing I can do. You see these verses here already. This is a continuation of this same list. Isaiah 44 in verse 6 in verse 24. Isaiah 45 verses 4 through 7. Verses 20 through 23, which we want to read in just a moment. Uh, Isaiah 46, 8 and 9. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Now you just read those, and I ask you, does Israel believe in more than one God? E even people who were very liberal in their view of the Old Testament, their critical understanding was, at first Israel believed in many gods, and then they thought their God was the greatest of all gods. But by the time of Isaiah, they are saying their God is the only God. And, and, and some even that describe themselves as conservatives are denying that Israel was actually monotheistic. But in Isaiah 45, verse 20, Gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge. 
who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult. Who has announced this from of old? Who has declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? He is saying, listen, I've told you beforehand what's going to happen. Is it not I, the Lord? Verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the nations. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will, and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Do you recognize the end of that verse? It's quoted or referenced in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's used in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, applied to Jesus. Now, this passage is good. We studied a long time once with some good Jehovah's Witnesses, some good people from the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we became friends with them. And they use this passage, and of course their translation has Jehovah. Jehovah's God, there's no one else. Every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess. And I said, but this passage is quoted in the New Testament and applied to Jesus. Obviously, whatever Jehovah involves, Jesus shares in being Jehovah. And I remember, I made the point. I thought I said it pretty clearly. I was just going to wait, not say a word. And they kept looking down at the verse. And I can remember so well. Him looking up the eyes at me and looking like, you're right. Hmm. But his wife said, but, but, but. But it shows us. But do you look at this verse and you get the idea that there are many gods? There's no God besides me. There's no God beside me. And, and, and I will tell you, the New Testament is just as monotheistic as the old. It affirms there's one God over and over. I know that the Father is God and the Spirit is God and the Son is God. But this is one God. Three personalities in the one God. And you find in Mark 12... 29 and 30 and then 32. All these are New Testament passages that affirm that there is one God. The Trinity does not change any of that. It does not change any of that. Even some ask in Israel excuse me, 1 Timothy 117. Some ask, was Israel monotheistic? I won't tell you one better than that. James 2.19 shows us the devil's monotheistic. 
You believe there's one God? You do well. The devils, the demons also believe and tremble. They, they believe there is one God. Now, is there... So we've got one possibility. And I will, I will tell you something. Um, if you can't follow that logic of that board, I just don't know what you could follow. <laughs> you understand I'm being sarcastic, not insulting you. But here is our main point. Human rulers, pagan gods of Okay, is there any other view that could be possible? Could it be that the gods, and isn't it logical to put one right in the middle and two on the left and three on the right? Isn't that a logical way to make a point on the board? <laughs> it could be that these gods referred to are angels and spirits. But it's a reference not to gods themselves, not in the sense that the true God is God, but that it is a reference to angels or spirits. That now, um, Okay, let me give you a couple of verses, and we may need to do some of this next time. Uh, but do you see angels and spirits involved with the world in this way? Not often, but yes. We we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with spiritual wickedness in high places. I can remember one time hearing a sermon where a person just used that verse. We're talking about spiritual wickedness in high places, and he started condemning all the wicked things that human rulers were doing. And everything he said was right. But the, the wickedness that he's talking about, the, the wickedness in high places, wasn't just the Congress and the President, but it goes higher than that to go to evil spiritual forces. That is the context. That's why we need the whole armor of God in context. Because we are wrestling with a formidable foe and we are, uh, he has uh, all kinds of weapons in his arsenal. Um, and some other Old Testament passages that show that. Remember Daniel 10, where it talks about the, uh, I was wrestling with the prince of Persia. And he talks about going back and wrestling with the prince of Greece. We see it there. Uh, we see it. Um, where you find um, 
There's a war in heaven in Revelation 12. And Michael and his angels were cast out. You see it in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. It seems like he has a portion to the judges, the nation. I think you even see it in, in, a pad, in like Revelation 2 and 3, where you find the angel of the churches. Maybe those are angels, literal angels of churches. Maybe there is an angel appointed to protect and guide churches. It may be that way for nations. In Deuteronomy, in, in Daniel, in, in Daniel 12, verse 1, Michael, your prince, uh, arises. Um, also, uh, trying to look for some other passages that give this kind of idea. Um, angels were created by Jesus. Colossians 1, uh, 15 and 16. And uh, they are subject to Him. They cannot separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And maybe this is where we get the angels who sinned in 2 Peter 2, 4. And Jude verse 6. Now, I've already gone over. And I could have explained that last point more closely. And I can tell you some good writers who take each of these views. Um... And I know we gave this one the shortest stick. Which, and it may be some kind of con con combination of them. But first of all, let me just ask this. Before you say anything else, do you at least understand? Is there something to have it made clear as far as this? Okay. You're welcome to disagree somehow if you want to. Or state what you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for listening. And so you can see, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to let him out early tonight and just go through these three ideas. <clears throat> so much for that. <laughs> but you can see why it's going to take us a couple of times because we barely touched. Psalm 82. Well, good. Well, good. Oh, thank you. And I, can I say something else at the same time? We all have to be aware of what's happening in this world today. Christianity is increasing. Are we aware? All the, per, the, the opposition all to Christianity or Christianity itself? Christianity is increasing in many parts of this yes, world. Parts of world. People are becoming Christians. We yes. should be aware. Yeah. And we should get yeah. ourselves involved. If wherever we can. Yeah. You know, people are converting to Christianity from other religions. Yes. In and large you, numbers. You, this is a statistic I have heard, uh, Matthew, about that. that and I, I don't remember when this dates back to... But this goes back to, uh, it may go back as far, it may go back 50 years, it may go back as far as 100 years. But in that time, the sub Saharan Africa, there would be 9% of people who would identify as Christian. Now it's like 60% who would. 
I was asking some who go to preach in Zimbabwe. And uh, I said, how, you know, how do people respond there to, to preaching? And he says, oh, he said, you know, he says, you'll draw a crowd. He said, sometimes you have to be conscious. Or is a person there to really learn about God? Or is a person there to, to you know, is he just want to get something? But he says, he said, people will listen. He says, they teach the Bible in schools. It is the Word of God. They don't, you know, you don't question it there. And, you know, wouldn't that be a beautiful world to live in? And some of you grew up in a world like that. And uh, a few years ago in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, this happened four, five, or six years ago, but they found a blackboard behind their present blackboard that still had writing on it in the calendar. Said 1917. It was from a 1917 schoolroom, and it had still had writing on the board from that. And you know what that board said? This was their sentence, apparently in writing, as they had write, written in very nice cursive on the board. I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. Oh, that that would be on boards today. Mm-hmm. But, Vicki? I read uh, on Google that I think that there is a law that is before the House in Texas, and so far it has passed. I think it's going to go through it. House or Congress in the state um, that the uh, Ten Commandments will be posted in every school room. Yeah. Not every school. <laughs> every school room. I found that to be uh, shock- shocking. Well, it's sad. It, it, it's sad that it's shocking, but I know. But uh, but more power to them in at least recognizing some consciousness of God. Maybe there's more school shootings because we don't read the words you shall not murder in front of us all the time. But thank you for being here. Rush, would you want to lead us in prayer as we close? God and Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to open up your word and and study it and learn more about you and uh, and how we can make applications to our lives. We thank you for who you are, that you are the sovereign God above uh, above everything, that you have created all things, and you've created us, and that you sustain us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your care. And we thank you for the hope that the relationship we have with you through Jesus and for what he suffered to, to give us that hope. And we pray that uh, you'll bless our earth and help us to grow and help us uh, to be more like you and to be more like Jesus. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.